You can take your Bibles and turn them with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> so, um, there is a woman named Hetty Green who lived a life of poverty. And uh, as the story is told, she ate cold oatmeal so that she wouldn't have to spend money heating the water. Uh, To save money, she wouldn't change her undergarments until they were completely worn out. She lived in cheap lodgings, and and her son once had a leg injury that was initially not a big deal, but it got worse because she only went to free medical clinics and they were unable to treat it, and so the son eventually lost his leg. In 1916, she died leaving an estate that was worth nearly $100 million. She was one of the wealthiest people of her day. She had unbelievable riches and resources, but she did not make use of them. And we would look at that and we we would think, well, how foolish is that? And yet, how much more foolish is it for Christians who have vast spiritual resources to live like spiritual paupers? dominated by sin and fear and and despair and spiritual defeat. Now, the problem with Hetty Green is that she was well aware of all of her resources, but she refused to use them. But often the tragedy with Christians is that we are ignorant of our resources in Christ, and so we cannot use them. We, We can't take advantage of them and be encouraged by them, and so our spiritual lives lack power and victory. And the Apostle Paul here in Ephesians aims to change all of that. Uh, Paul wants these first century believers, and all believers for that matter, to live for God. That's the emphasis of chapters 4 through 6 of this book, where he calls us to live lives of holiness and purity and truth and integrity. He wants the relationships of church members to be pulsating with self-sacrificial love and tenderness. He wants men to be the kind of husbands who will go all out for their brides in Christ-like loving service. He wants women to be the, the kind of wives who will joyfully respect and follow the lead of their husbands. He wants relationships between parents and kids to be in a state of peace and harmony. He wants workers and bosses to be engaged in mutual respect. And above all, he wants us to experience victory over the satanic powers that are seeking to hunt down and devour Christians, causing us to compromise our faith and ruin our witness to the world. And, and that, my friends, all of that is a very tall order. And so, Paul's going to help us now to, to live up to, to all of that. But how's he going to do it? How's he going to help us to live up to those things? Well, I think it's noteworthy that Paul doesn't immediately launch his book with exhortations and commands uh, on how you should live. He doesn't give you a bunch of lists. Instead, he starts by telling you who you are in Christ all that you have in Him, all of your resources in Him, because identity matters. Who you think you are and all the implications of that are going to play a major role in determining the overall trajectory of your life. Paul wants you to grasp that. He he really wants those truths to sink down deep into your heart. In fact, if you look down to Ephesians 1.17, Paul prays that that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory, give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. And then in the next verse, Paul prays that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. Now, 
the heart in the Bible is shorthand for the very center of your being. It's the core of who you are, your very identity. It's, it's the mission control center of your life. As the heart goes, so you go, for better or for worse. And like Paul, I've been praying for you here at Harbinch Church. I've been praying that the eyes of your hearts might be enlightened as we explore Ephesians and, and as your hearts become gripped by the reality of the riches of God's grace, that in that your life would be changed and transformed big time as you discover your true identity and who you really are in Christ. So, with all of that said, please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our great and glorious God. We are in Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to pick up where we left off last time in verse 15. Read through chapter 1 into chapter 2, down to chapter 2, verse 10. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Spirit, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ." By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works." which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, may you add your blessing to the reading and the hearing and the preaching of God's Word. Help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. If I can get a a deacon maybe to grab me a little bit of water, that would be awesome. My little supply here is, is all gone. The Apostle Paul has already been revealing to us some incredible things about our true identity as Christians. Uh, Earlier in chapter 1, for example, we learned that we were chosen by God the Father. In verse 5, he writes that, in love, God predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons. 
And in the ancient world, it was the sons who were favored. It was the sons who had the greatest share of the inheritance and who were expected to represent the father and the family name. And Paul is saying that all believers, whether they are men or women or boys or girls or free people or slaves, all believers have the status, the special status of sons in God's royal household. And with that special status comes special privileges. And that's, that's really the first thing that Paul turns our attention to in this uh, section of Scripture. He talks about your present privileges in Christ, your present privileges in Christ. You know, one of the things I've been encouraging you to do a lot lately is to pray for one another to take that church membership directory that was handed out at the last meeting and and just pray through that, praying for the members. And and I've heard that some of you are doing that, and I'm very happy to hear that. But I wonder, what are the specific kinds of things you are praying for, for your brothers and sisters in Christ? What are your priorities in prayer? Well, what Paul prays here in Ephesians 1 might be a little different than what's on your personal prayer list. He's He's not praying for health concerns. He's not praying about uh, their financial situation or the various challenges that they're having in their relationships. And there's nothing wrong, by the way, with praying for those things. But Paul here is shooting even bigger than that in his prayers. He, He says in verse 17, what you really need is a spirit of revelation and wisdom. He says in verse 18, you need the eyes of your hearts enlightened. You see, when your health fails and your job fails and relational struggles erupt and and the society grows increasingly pagan, what you really need in those moments is to know God and who you are in relationship to Him and all that you have in Him. You, You have to realize all of the privileges that you have as a member of God's family. And Paul zeroes in in this section on three particular privileges. He talks about hope. He talks about inheritance, and he talks about power. Regarding hope, he says in verse 18, he prays that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now, often when we use that word hope, we equate it with uncertainty. You know, like, like I, I hope the Falcons have a winning season next year. I see some people shaking their heads. You're pretty certain that they're not. But, but, but that's usually how we use the word, we're hope, the word hope. We're not really sure if this is going to come to fruition, but we re- really would like it if it did. Uh, but, but for Paul, when he uses that word hope, he, actually it's the exact opposite. Uh, for Paul, hope is the assurance of future realities. It's something that is so sure that you can count on it, but it hasn't come to full fruition yet. Uh, we're still waiting for it with eager expectation and confidence. That, that's what Paul means by hope. And this is one of the privileges that God's people possess. Uh, the hope of the believer is bound up in the reality that in the midst of all of our trials and all of our tribulations and all of our difficulties and sufferings, none of those things have the last word in the life of a Christian. None of those things are ultimately going to destroy the Christian. Uh, the hope of the believer tells us that instead of those things destroying us, that God is actually using all of those things. He's actually working all of those things together for our good, serving God's grand design for your life, which is to conform you into the beautiful image of Jesus Christ. Uh, All of these things that are happening are not leading to defeat, but to what will ultimately be a happy ending for the people of God. This is This is what Paul means when he encourages us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 to not lose heart. 
He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, Paul there isn't minimizing the difficulties that we face in life. Paul faced more hardship than practically anyone. He knew what it was like to suffer. The point here is that when you take the difficulty and you put it on one side of the scale and you take the future glory that God has in store for His people and you put it on the other side of the scale, it's no contest. The greatness of what's to come far outweighs what we've endured. That's the hope that the Christian has. The unbeliever doesn't have that kind of hope. It's why there's a huge difference between the funeral of a believer and the funeral of an unbeliever. If you remember in 1 Thessalonians 4, where, where the church there was mourning the loss of some of its members, you remember what Paul says to them? Paul reminds them that, yes, we grieve, but we do not grieve as others who have no hope. Because Jesus has come and died and rose again for us to, to secure for us a future home in heaven that far outweighs Uh, far exceeds the greatest pleasures this world has to offer, and it far outweighs the deepest pain that we may experience along the way. And, And grasping and laying hold of that future reality actually has practical impact on how we live right now. Kent Hughes writes that hope is the opposite of despair. It breathes massive optimism. We're going to stand with Christ at the final press conference of the universe, and our photograph is going to be taken with Him. And we're going to, we're going to look like Him. And that seems to be what the Apostle John is getting at when he writes, Beloved, we are God's children now. Uh, What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And immediately after that, John says, everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. So, one of the privileges we have in Christ is hope. But Paul also talks about inheritance. At the end of verse 18, he prays that the Ephesians might know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, if you're just kind of reading through chapter 1 quickly, your first thought may be that what Paul's talking about here is the inheritance that we have in God. And certainly, we do have an inheritance as sons of the Father. In fact, if you back up to verses 13 and 14, there Paul tells you that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. But, but look again at verse 18. Look at it closer, closer. Paul here is praying that his readers might know not the inheritance that we have in God, but what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. That's a little bit different. In other words, brothers and sisters, God regards you as His treasured inheritance. And you say, well, Deemer, I don't, I don't feel very valuable. I don't feel like a treasure. I feel like a wretch. Well, you were. We all were, apart from Christ. We, we were rebels and sinners, corrupt to the core. And those of us in churches like ours, especially those who embrace Reformed theology like I do and many of you do, we are really good at highlighting the utter wretchedness of man. Uh, we, we are really good at that. It almost seems like sometimes we enjoy it. 
And sometimes we overemphasize it to the point that we neglect other truths in Scripture where we embrace what I would call worm theology. Worm theology. Well, I'm, I'm useless. I'm, I'm a piece of trash. No, no, I'm actually worse than a piece of trash. And we just go on and on and on about how awful we are, and, and that's it. And it sounds really spiritual to beat ourselves up in that way. But there's more to the gospel story than you being a wretch. That, that's only the first half of the story. The beauty of the gospel is that God saw beyond all of the wretchedness and perceived what He would do in us and what He would make us into. And so now we can sing that, that one hymn with great joy, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son to do what? To make a wretch His treasure. It's not the only Scripture where God honors His people by regarding them as His inheritance or His treasure. Malachi 3 says, a book of remembrance was written of those who feared the Lord and esteemed His name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, my treasured possession. The idea of God's people being God's valuable possession carries over into the New Testament, not just in the writings of Paul, but in Peter's writings, who, who says elsewhere uh, in 1 Peter 2.9 that you are a people for His own possession. Now, if God really regards you as His inheritance, uh, if He regards you in that way, that should bring incredible peace and security to you because, because one thing that someone does not do with his treasured possession is, is throw it away. If you've got something that is valuable and precious to you, what, what do you do with it? You guard it. You, you keep it. You protect it. You cherish it. You don't lose it. You keep it safe. Now, your identity as part of God's treasure, as, as being His inheritance, it's not just meant to bring you a sense of security, but it's also meant to serve as a foundation, as fuel for your service to Him. Uh, the Bible scholar F.F. F. Bruce wrote that Paul prays here in Ephesians 1 that his readers will appreciate the value which God places on them in order that their lives may be in keeping with their high calling. If you think that you're worthless trash, that, that's going to impact how you live your life. But if, Christian brother and sister, uh, you see with the eyes of your heart that have, have been enlightened and you see that you are God's inheritance, oh, what a glorious encouragement to live that way, to live in accordance with your identity. In addition to possessing a hope and in addition to the honor of being God's inheritance, the other privilege that you have is Christ's power. In verse 19, Paul prays that his readers would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Power is a key word in the book of Ephesians, and that word would have meant a lot to Paul's readers. The city of Ephesus was a community steeped in magical practices. Uh, seeking after magical power. Uh, it, it was involved in the occult. M many of the believers in that church would have been saved out of that kind of lifestyle, a life that was filled with fear of evil spirits, a life that was focused on learning the names of these invisible beings with the goal of accessing their power and figuring out how to appease and manipulate the gods. 
And Paul now tells these Ephesians that the power of Jesus Christ is supreme. In verse 19, he says, he wants them to know the working of his great might, which, by the way, is the exact same phrase we find at the very end of Ephesians in chapter 6, verse 10, in that classic passage on spiritual warfare where, where he warns the Ephesians about the demonic powers that seek to destroy them, and he tells them in chapter 6 to be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. You see, the people of Ephesus were exactly right to be wary of dark powers and principalities. But for those who are in Christ, for those of us who are God's adopted sons, we don't stand against those powers and our own strength and our own resources. We're instead reminded of the power of God, a power that, it says in verse 20, raised Christ from the dead, and verse 21, exalted Jesus far above every rule and authority, and here's the word again, power. Jesus stands above all powers, even the powers that that these Ephesians used to be afraid of. Verse 19 says that God is working that power towards us who believe. In other words, that power is, is coming forth from God on our behalf. And as the eyes of our hearts are enlightened to the point where we really believe that, we'll find it to be totally life changing. Because Uh, Folks, let's be honest, we can be overwhelmed by our sense of weakness, uh, both physically and spiritually. Uh, We are weak, we are fragile, we are flawed, but Paul wants us to take our eyes off of ourselves and remember His power and His strength, to remember what Jesus told His fearful disciples, greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. His power is made perfect in our weakness. So, hope the honor of being His inheritance, His divine power working on your behalf, those are your present privileges in Christ. As we move on into chapter 2, Paul takes an interesting turn as he reminds you of your past condition without Christ, your past condition without Christ. After talking about God's mighty resurrection power, he now gives us a concrete example of that power. He's going to show us what that looked like in our lives personally. He takes us back on a journey uh, back to our lives before Jesus. And, And this is very helpful in understanding our identity in Christ. You will better understand who you are now if you see it against the backdrop of who you used to be. You know, one of the most popular illustrations that I've heard regarding what happens in salvation is the illustration of the drowning man. Uh, The sinner is depicted as a man in the ocean who can't swim. Uh, He's in serious danger of going under and drowning, and he will die if if he does not have someone to help him. And and God, in the illustration, is seen as the divine lifeguard uh, with a a rope or a, a life preserver, and he has tossed the rope out to the drowning man. And all he has to do to be saved from death is reach out and grab that rope. If he will put his trust in that rope, in that lifeguard, and if he can grab onto that rope, he will be saved from drowning and and pulled to safety. Paul, however, here in chapter 2, paints a much bleaker picture of the condition of humanity. Paul doesn't say that you were in danger of dying. What, What does he say? What what does Paul say about your condition before salvation? You're dead. You're not drowning. You've already drowned. You're not struggling to stay afloat. Your corpse is already on the ocean floor. 
And everyone who is not a believer in Jesus Christ is already dead. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to understand that you once were dead. Now, now what does Paul mean by that? Even though he says we were dead in verse 1, right after that, notice Paul gives a description of things that living people do. Look what he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil by the way, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So you've got people here who are walking and who are following and they don't just have passions, but they are, they are carrying them out. They're, they're, they're following through with their desires. That doesn't seem like dead people. They seem very much alive to me. So what does he mean by dead? God told Adam and Eve, our ancestors, that the day that you eat of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the day that you sin against me, you will surely die. God didn't say if you eat of it, you'll eventually die. God said the very day you eat it, you will surely die. Immediately when you sin, Adam, death will happen. And when Adam ate from that tree, he did not drop dead physically on the spot. That wouldn't happen for another 900 years. But God does not lie. God said, The day you eat of it, you will die. Something happened to Adam. Some kind of death came upon Adam. And if Adam did not die physically that day, then the death that happened must have been a spiritual death. And because we're all descendants of Adam, we share in his nature and we share in his condition. That's why Paul writes in Romans 5, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men. We were all at one time spiritually disconnected from the life of God. We didn't want God. We didn't love God. Like Adam, we wanted to dethrone God and be our own God. We invented other gods that we like better, that that can better serve our selfish desires. In uh, in 1 Corinthians 2.14, we're told that the natural person, that that is the the unregenerate person, the, the person who is in his natural state apart from God, The natural person does not accept the things of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The problem is not that the things of God are over man's head intellectually. The problem is that he sees them as foolish. It's not an intellectual issue here. It's a moral and a spiritual issue. This is why people reject God. Man and his deadness always regards the things of God as stupid, as absolutely ridiculous. Man always rejects God. Man will never listen to and submit to God any more than a corpse will listen to and submit to you. You can, you can go to a graveyard and you can talk to a corpse all day long and that corpse is not going to listen to you. He is dead to you. And, and, and man is, in that kind of way, dead to God. Another aspect of spiritual death is, is not only an internal hardness towards God, but also a captivity to an external evil power. Paul says in verse 2, we were following after the prince of the power of the air. Again, that is Satan. And 2 Corinthians 4 describes in terrible detail the nature of this captivity 
when we are told that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Again, the God of this world, small g, that's talking about the devil, the blinding work that, that Satan does, blinding us to the glory and beauty of Christ so that he doesn't seem as beautiful as he actually is. He seems ridiculous. So, man is dead, man's a slave to his own passions and desires, and a slave to Satan, and blind. But the picture gets even grimmer in verse 3. Paul says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In our natural condition, the only thing we were fit for was God's judgment to be executed against us for our treason against Him, and that final judgment is eternal spiritual death in hell. That's man before Christ, uh, before salvation. It's, it's, all, it's all pretty depressing, I know. But when we come to verse 4, there is suddenly a shocking twist in the story where everything changes with two grand and glorious words, but God. And that leads to my next observation where Paul talks about the powerful love of God in your life. We were in a hopeless state. We were lost, we were dead, we were by nature children of wrath, but God did something. God intervened. God showed up. God acted. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You, you can't raise a corpse by speaking, but God can. God can. And we see here that salvation is not merely God throwing a rope into the ocean to save a drowning man. And and if that drowning man just grabs onto the rope, he'll be saved. Salvation isn't a tag team effort. It isn't 50% you and 50% God. He he does his part, I'm going to do my part. Paul says in verse 8, you are saved by grace through faith. And he says in verse 9, not a result of works, so that no one can boast, no one can brag. The drowning man who grabs the rope who grabs the life preserver, well, well, at least there's something he can say. He can say that I grabbed the rope. I, I did something uh, with the last bit of strength. I, I grabbed it. But, but, but salvation isn't even 99% God and 1% you. You don't even have 1% to boast about. Salvation is, is, is much bigger than this. Now, you say, well, well wait a minute, I, I did in a sense grab the rope. I, I, I remember specifically that, that time where I cried out to God, and, and the Bible does say all who call on the name of the Lord will be, will be saved, and indeed that's true, but the question is, is why did you do that? Well, why did you call on the name of the Lord? Why, why you who were once formerly a hater of God, a, a rebel going your own way and wanting to be Lord and refusing Jesus as Lord, why, why all of a sudden now do you, do you turn around and say, yes, I'm following that man? Something happened to you. God did something to you to, to get you to that point. When God saved you, He did not throw out a rope for us to grab onto. No. God instead dived into the ocean. 
He swam all the way to the bottom. He saw Deemer Webb's rotting corpse on the ocean floor, and because of his great love and great mercy, he took that dead body to the surface, and he breathed life into my cold, dead heart, and he changed it, and he raised me from the dead. That's how Deemer Webb got saved. He he healed me of the blindness that Satan blinded me with, and once that happened, then I could see. I once was blind, now I see. I could see how great Christ was. I could see how glorious Christ was, how beautiful Christ was. And after I saw all of those things nearly 28 years ago this fall, I said, yes, I want him. I love him. I need him. I got to have him in my life. I want to follow him and submit to him. I want this man who rescued me from the dead to be my Lord forever. That, that's what happened to me. And so, my friends, I say without shame or embarrassment, but with great joy and great boasting in God, that my salvation was 0% Deemer, 100% God. Praise God for that. If you're sitting here this morning, you need to know that the same power that Paul talked about in chapter 1, that power that raised Christ from the dead, that breathed life into the corpse of Christ and seated Jesus at God's right hand, is the exact same power that here in chapter 2 breathed life into our dead spirits and raised us up to newness of life and, and, and seated us with Him, Paul says, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Christ is physically in heaven at God's right hand. And spiritually speaking, we're now regarded as being a citizen of those heavenly places as well, Uh, even sharing a measure of the authority that Christ has due to our union with Him, which really would have resonated with those Ephesian believers who used to be afraid of those evil, uh, invisible powers in the spirit realm, and all of that should resonate with us too. And this great act of salvation... I want you to follow this here. This great act of salvation really highlights the love of God. I, we talk about how God is love, and, and, and that, that's become so trite, and we, we don't really think about it. And it doesn't grip us like we should, but, but think about this. It's not like God saved a bunch of sweet, innocent people, right? It, it wasn't... It wasn't like he looked at us and, and he saw some of us and he said, yeah, yeah, I, I know they're not perfect, but they're basically good and they just need a little help. And they're really adorable. They're really irresistible. And I got to have them on my team. Now, if that was the case, I suppose God helping such a people would give you a God who was a little loving, right? He, he gives you a little help. I guess he's a little loving. Uh, but that, that's not the kind of love we see from God. I like how Paul explains it in Romans 5. He says, for one, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, the ungodly is us. Uh, ungodly people are not sweet and innocent and deserving. Uh, he, he then says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one will dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ died on the cross to save, of all people, sinners. Of all people. 
That's amazing. That's love. Uh, Folks, if you minimize what the Bible says about the ungodliness of man, and you want to sugarcoat it, and, and, and you want to act like man is actually not that bad, just know that when you minimize that, you have totally minimized the love of God, even robbing Him of His glory. Don't, don't minimize His love and make it seem like it was no big deal that, that we just had it coming and we deserved all these great things that we are getting in God. We need to see ourselves for who we really were. And only then will we see and savor and rejoice over and exult in God's love like we should. Your salvation was an attack team effort between you and God. Your salvation was a resurrection of a dead soul that was cold and hostile to God, which received newness of life. Indeed, that was just graphically illustrated and celebrated in Corinne's baptism a moment ago. And to the degree that we grasp the depth of God's love for us is the degree that we can feel confident and secure in Him between here and heaven. What I mean is, is, is that if he, if he loved you when you were at your absolute worst, and He gave up His Son to save you when you were at your absolute worst, then why do you think He would not love you now that you belong to Him? That's the logic of, of, of Paul in, in Romans 5.10 where he says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. What wonderful realities the Scriptures are revealing to us. I don't know if, if the eyes of your heart are being enlightened right now, <laughs> as Paul prayed in, in chapter 1. I can't see externally what's going on in your heart, but I, I pray that He is, and that you're being gripped by these truths, and that, that you've been gripped by your present privilege in Christ, and, and, and that you have contemplated your past condition without Christ, and, and, and that you've uh, been moved by the powerful love of God in your life. But there's a final thing that Paul shows us in this passage, and that is the purpose of God for your life. God did not save you just to get you out of hell and then just cut you loose to find your own way in the universe. No way. Folks, God has big plans for you. Big plans. Look at verse 7. God saved you so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God is saving us, Paul says. He's saving us to put His mercy and His grace and His kindness on display. We have the privilege of being tokens of the immeasurable riches of His grace for all of eternity. God can never be accused of not being merciful. He takes the most wretched and despicable of sinners. He takes dead people and brings them to life. He takes people who were slaves to the prince of the power of the air and makes them adopted children of God with the prince of peace as their elder brother. He he takes people who deserve wrath and He lavishes upon them mercy. But there's more. It gets even better. Verse 10, Paul writes that we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, you are not saved by works, but you are saved for good works. There are good things that before you were even born, God had planned for you to do. Good works, 
Lots of them. Things that glorify God, whether that be uh, Barbara leading a ministry to the elderly or, or volunteers loving our kids through serving in the nursery or people behind the scenes doing meal trains for those in need in our church or visiting the sick in the hospital or evangelizing your neighbors or standing up for life at Planned Parenthood or discipling a, a younger believer or using your wealth for kingdom purposes or, or deacons taking care of building needs and making the pastor's life a lot easier. Or Rebecca heading up a a VBS to share Jesus with kids, or husbands loving their wives in such a way that shows the world something about the love of Jesus that he has for his church, and all the other many things that you're doing in Jesus' name and for his glory that I don't even know about. God has prepared these works beforehand that you should do these things. He says, we are his workmanship. You may want to circle or underline that word in your Bible. We are His workmanship. The Greek word for workmanship is poema. What English word do you think we get from that? A poem. You are God's workmanship. You are God's poem. You are God's work of art. As God saves you and raises you from the dead and breathes new life into you. He begins to transform you and make you uh, more and more like Jesus. Ephesians 5 says that Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her. Uh, God didn't just save you to get you out of hell and get you into heaven. Uh, Christ gave Himself up for His bride to beautify you that he might take something that was ugly and unlovable and dirty and make you into a poem, a beautiful work of art, a masterpiece. Why? What's the point? Is it so that the universe will make much of you, be, be in awe of how beautiful you are? If you've been going to Harbin's for any length of time, you know the answer to that question. That's, that's not ultimately how art works. John Stott tells a story about one of his professors at Cambridge who was honored on his retirement by the board and faculty of his college with a beautiful portrait that had been done in, of his likeness that would be hung in the hall where he had taught for, for most of his life. And, 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 and this, this man, uh, Dr. Gibson, when, when he was giving his words of, of thanks and appreciation at the unveiling of this beautiful portrait, Dr. Gibson said, in the future… When people see this painting, they will ask the question not, who is that man, but who painted that portrait? The point is that the the artist did such an amazing job that the work would draw attention to itself and and point to the artist. Uh, That's exactly how it works in regards to the work that God is doing in you and in me. As Ligon Duncan has said, God's grace has been manifested to us, not so that we are the center of attention and that people are asking, well, well what about that man? What, 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 what's his name? What about that woman? What's her name? But, but instead, who did that work of grace in him? Who did that work of grace in her? I, I knew her before, before this. Something happened. Who did that? Who's responsible? We are the display of His workmanship in salvation. You may have never thought of yourself as a, as a beautiful piece of art, someone who's becoming more and more beautiful. It may be hard for you to believe, but Christian brother, Christian sister, if you belong to God, I 
promise you that God is making something beautiful out of you. God is a master artist. He's taking all the things that are happening in, in your life and all the things that He has called you to, both the good and the bad, and, and, he's, and, he's, and, and, and that becomes the, the, the palette of paint. It becomes the ingredients for the, the good work that He is doing in you. And God is a master artist. And what he does in you will be a lovely and glorious display of his craftsmanship for all of eternity because God has predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. And folks, there is nothing in the universe more beautiful than that. In spite of all the vast resources at her disposal, Hetty Green never really enjoyed them. She she never took advantage of what she had. How strange. But it is even stranger if we, after pondering our infinite resources in Christ, our present privileges, our past condition, which serves as the backdrop for His powerful love, which has saved us for a a grand and glorious purpose. How strange would it be if we just walked out of this room in 10 minutes and completely forgot it all, and we did not let these truths shape our lives, influence our choices, give our hearts hope, and bolster our walk with power. And we just instead, we, we, we go on with our day, and we watch the NFC championship game like nothing ever happened to us, living like spiritual paupers. How strange that would be. But, but I can't make your heart be gripped and transformed by these things. And so all I can do now is end our time together where the Apostle Paul began it in our text with prayer for the flock, the flock that he loves so much, prayer to the one who who can do these things, who can open your eyes and captivate your heart with all that you are and all that you have in Christ to the point that it will be utterly life-changing and transforming forever. So I'm going to pray that for you right now. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, how grateful I am for so many brothers and sisters in this room who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, who have been awakened from the dead, and they belong to you, and they're part of your family. And Father, I pray now in Jesus' name that you might give my brothers and sisters the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they may know what is the hope to which you have called them, uh, the, rich, the, the riches of your glorious inheritance in them, and the immeasurable greatness of your power working towards all who believe according to the working of your great might. That, that you worked in Christ when you raised Him from the dead and seated Him at your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, as you put all things under His feet, and you've given Him as head over all things to the church, we who are the body of Christ the fullness of Him who fills all in all. In Jesus' name, amen.